Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Freedom groups protesting pandemic public health measures are at it again. Should we be concerned about the movement gathering for Canada Day on Parliament Hill? Ontario NDP have named a longtime Toronto MPP Peter Tabbins as their interim leader. He joins us on the program to talk about next moves for the party. And Air Canada is planning to reduce its flights in July and August due to what they call customer service shortfalls. It's already very inconvenient to travel these days. How much worse is it going to get? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, as we mentioned, Canada Day, and invariably on this day, well, tomorrow being Canada Day, of course, all eyes will be on the nation's capital. There's always a great big celebration, and so right there in front of the Parliament buildings. And uh, things are going to be a little different this year, uh, simply because of uh, what's going on uh, with COVID, certainly, but um, the, the restrictions, but uh, certainly also... Uh, what's being impacted here is uh, is where people are going to be allowed to gather. Uh, um, and that has a lot to do with, of course, what happened in February with the, the convoy that parked themselves in front of the Parliament buildings for so long. Uh, and many of those same organizers say, hey, we're coming back. And uh, they're there now, apparently. Uh, but the police seem to have got things under control. That's the reporting we're getting on this so far. But should we be concerned about this? I mean, is there a risk? Uh, we're hearing all sorts of rumors and, and some, some chatter on social media uh, is it what you do about nothing, or should we be concerned about what happens uh, when, when these people gather again? I want to bring Phil Gursky into the conversation. Phil is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, a, a distinguished fellow at the University of Ottawa Security Program, and of course a former CSIS analyst. Phil, great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Bill. How are you today, sir? I'm I'm doing well. I'm I'm reading all the stuff about what's going to happen here. We've uh, had a number of uh, clips, of course, uh, from the acting chief there, uh, Chief Bell, uh, about how police are going to be handling this. We're told that RCMP are are on guard and getting ready uh, just in case they need to be called in on something like this. Uh, is this much to do about nothing, or should we be concerned? Mm, that's a tough question, Bill. I think it's a bit of both. Uh, I've been talking to some people about this quite a bit lately. And I think that what uh, Interim Chief Bell has had to say is basically, you know what, um, we didn't look good back in January and February. We were accused, rightly or wrongly, of having mishandled the situation. And we're going to make sure that this time we don't have a repeat of what happened in January and February. So they're going in, I think, better prepared with a plan in, in, in advance as to what to do. Whether or not the plan will be required, that's a different question. But at least I think that they are, at least in terms of what may happen tomorrow, You'll probably see a greater force out there. They probably will be a little quicker to act on on incidents that they perceive might morph into something more serious. But whether or not we're going to see the same scale, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of I kind of have mixed feelings on this bill. Part of me thinks that you won't see a repeat of January and February. That was a one off. But there is still a lot of anger in this country, and I, I'd be surprised if there were nobody downtown in in Ottawa uh, tomorrow that wasn't there for reasons that you know might kind of push the envelope a little bit. Well, and, and they've taken precautions. In other words, uh, you know, for the people that are going to be there, uh, whether you're celebrating Canada Day or if you've got something to protest, uh, they're going to be marshaled off into different areas, which is not unusual in, in, in capital cities. I mean, I, I was reading this book this morning again, Phil, and I, I was thinking back, I, it's been a couple of years since I've been to Washington, but I, you can't go near the White House on Pennsylvania Avenue. I mean, well, you can, but you can't take a vehicle down there. It's all blocked off. It has been, I think, since 9-11. Uh, you know, same thing in London, uh, you know, at Downing Street where the prime minister lives. That's just, you know, you can't go down that street. Uh, it's There's a big gate there. Uh, and, and then that's just the way things are these days. And it, it may be overkill in some people's minds, but uh, maybe the thing is, maybe we were too lax in the past. 
I think you raise a really good point. Look, Bill, I've been here for 40 years. So I moved from London, Ontario to Ottawa back in 82. I've been to dozens of uh, Canada Day celebrations on Parliament Hill. I've seen lots of protests. And of course, under the Constitution, Charter of Rights, we have a right to protest in Canada. But I do think that here in Canada, we've kind of had it too good for too long. And you're absolutely right. In a lot of countries that are equally as democratic as we are, United States, although maybe they're not as democratic as they used to be these days, um, in England, in Australia, you're right, there are restrictions on where you can go. Having said that, even if you can't access the White House itself, there's a park right across the street. I believe it's called Lafayette Park in Washington, Bill. Yeah, there's yeah. always protesters there, protesting oh, sure. everything from A to Z kind of thing. And that is the right as a democracy. But I think that law enforcement and security have finally realized, you know what, Um Yes, you have a right to protest. Doesn't mean you can protest by, you know, sort of knocking on the door of the Senate or going up to the Supreme Court building as people wanted to do this Canada Day. So we're not restricting your right to protest. We're kind of just saying you can protest, but you can do it in a place that doesn't actually pose a potential threat to people like senators or politicians, whatever. So we're gonna not going to say you can't protest. We're just going to tell you where you can protest. Well, exactly. And, and that is always the way. And I just referenced London, England a few minutes ago. I know you've been over there, too. There's a little park across the road from the Parliament buildings there, too. And uh, there's always 15 or 20 groups there, not just people, but groups. And they've got their placards and everything else, as, as they do in Lafayette Square. And that's fine. Uh, so that you make that accommodation. But, I mean, we ha- I think we have to be sensible about uh, what's happening here. And, and just as, as, you know, Acting Chief Bell said, just take, you know, precautions uh, to make sure that things don't get out of hand. And, uh, and you know, you don't want to repeat what happened in February. Uh, we've got the organizers, those that have come forward anyway and identified themselves as organizers, saying, look, this is going to be peaceful. We don't want people doing rowdy things. But as we found in February, though, Phil, uh, when you get a crowd like that with uh, – you know, some of them having different points of view. I mean, they're not all there protesting one thing. Well, maybe the commonality here is they don't like government. But I mean, aside from that, uh, you can't control everybody. So you don't know what's going on. But, you know, there are subsets here that are going to be a present, I would think, too, just like there were in February. Exactly. You know, Bill, I had a conversation with Andrew Lawton, who's with a new book about the Freedom Convoy. I believe Andrew's with Global News as well. And he was saying he actually talked to dozens of people that were part of the protest back in January and February. And it really was the dog dog's breakfast of actors. The organizers themselves re- recognized that they couldn't control, nor did they want to control everybody that participated. But they came from all four corners, Bill, with a variety of agendas, as you noted. And some of them were a little more extreme. And I'll just point out to your listeners that the Integrated Terrorism Assessment Center, or ITAC, which is housed within CSIS, where I worked, uh, gave a warning to the government in advance about possibility of some actors who are a little on the more extreme end of the spectrum might show up and potentially could use act of, acts of violence, which we didn't see for the most part. I think we should we should emphasize that mm-hmm. as as chaotic as it was in January and February, Bill. It wasn't really violent, and a lot of people were, were, thought it might be. So I think, you know, moving forward, it's, you know, the old saying is, you know, once burned, twice shy. I think that they're going to have the measures in place, the Ottawa police. They've already called up some RCMP officers as well. But, you know, there's always that sort of intangible factor is that will people show up with other agendas in mind? As you said, there's a lot of discontent right now, a lot of hatred for the Trudeau government, a lot of desire for change of whatever kind. And we just, I just really hope, and I'm confident that the agencies involved, like CSIS, like the RCMP, will have the information and intelligence available. They can point out where the where the problem areas are, so they can act, you know, in advance of things happening, rather than being in a reactionary mode. Yeah, and, and I'm anticipating the same thing. I think you know th- there's going to be some yelling and, and and you know some slogans and and signs, and I can imagine what some of them are going to say. But I, I think I think they've got this uh, under control. And, and like you say. Uh, 
that that's really you know crowd control 101 isn't it it's just to marshal them to areas where they can do what they want to do uh without causing the you know the maximum inconvenience etc i mean you're right i mean it's not as if there was a lot of violent activity in february uh, there might have been some isolated incidents but it was a huge inconvenience that shut down the economy of the downtown for how many days and and that's what they don't want is people just sitting going and say okay we're going to stay here so I, I, I'm pretty confident, too. That, and keep in mind, as, as we just talked about, it's Canada Day. So there's an awful <laughs> lot of other people from, from different parts of the country that are going to be in Ottawa just because they want to celebrate. Bill, I, like I said earlier, I've been here for four decades. I've been many times on Parliament Hill, and there are tens of thousands of people. It's cheek to jowl. Everyone's in a good mood. We have the fireworks, which are a spectacular fireworks display. We have live bands on Parliament Hill. I'm not sure what's happening this year for that. It's a great festive atmosphere. But even back in the old days, Bill, there were individuals that saw this as an opportunity maybe to do some, you know, uh, I don't know, people like pickpockets and things like that, or people that oh, wanted sure. to do yeah. dumb things on Canada Day. When you get 100,000 people on, on, you know, on the lawn, that's just what, what's going to happen. But no, I, I th- I th- I'm pretty confident it'll go over rather peacefully. There'll be some eggheads who are going to do, you know, say some dumb things or have some, some slogans. I noticed that the, uh, you know, interim chief bell did say that any indication of any hateful expressions will be will be taken down immediately and there'll be charges under section 319 of the criminal code which covers hate crimes i found that a little interesting that they can sort of almost like sort of pre-charge somebody but uh again we're going to see what happens but I, I i'm very hopeful i'm cautiously optimistic it'll all go well and it'll be a great Canada day to celebrate our 155th birthday Hope so. Uh, I want to tap into your, your security expertise here for a second, too. As, as we know, NATO is meeting right now over in Spain. Uh, and, uh, and one of the uh, missives that just came out of here talked about security and actually a warning uh, to NATO allies and their allies, of course, uh, to watch out for Russia attacks. Uh, apparently, the Russians aren't really uh, comfortable with the fact that uh, the sanctions are starting to impact them and they're getting pretty ticked. Uh, and uh, they're concerned that, uh, that countries like Canada, the United States, Australia, the whole number of them here, uh, could be victims of, of attacks. Now, I don't think that means a physical attack necessarily because uh, they have other things at their disposal, cyber attacks, and the, the Russians are pretty good at, at messing things up here. Uh, does that put us on, on alert from a security standpoint to see what may or may not happen here? I think it has, but I would I'd also say, Bill, that we have been there for quite some time. You know, Bill, you and I are old to remember the Cold War when yep. the Soviet Union was the number one. Ally. I started at CSC, the Signals Intelligence Agency, way back in 83, when the Cold War was still raging. We were worried about Soviet Union and its allies. What I find interesting is that, you know, when the, when the Cold War ended and the Soviet Union dissolved and, and Russia became a, a separate nation, we all saw Russia as an ally. And I think those of us who worked in the Cold War, maybe kind of thought, mm, maybe we shouldn't go there that quickly. They're not really an ally in the sense that maybe they were during the, the Second World War under Stalin, you know, when we were fighting the Nazis. So I think we were in a rush to embrace the new Russia as a, a potential partner, uh, quasi-democracy. And, you know, 30 years later, what do we got? We have Putin, who's acting in, in every sense like the old Soviets used to do, a very aggressive manner, not just towards Ukraine, but towards Central Asia, towards Georgia. He's made threatening remarks against the Baltic states. Of course, he's not he's not happy that Finland and, and Sweden have been admitted in principle to NATO. You know, we've been dealing with Russia attacks for quite some time uh, in recent years. Like, as you said, I think they're mostly of the cyber variety. I mean, I don't work in intelligence anymore. I don't have the details. Mm-hmm. But I think that our intelligence services are well aware of Russian activities, and and rightly so. And they're, they're doing what they can to thwart these attacks. But it's a very fluid situation in what's happening in Ukraine. Um, I've seen predictions, Bill, this could go on for years. And as somebody whose grand- yeah. grandparents on my mother's side came from Ukraine, I'd rather not see that. But Watch this story because it's not going away anytime soon. 
And and as you're right, we don't hear that. You know, there's no headline that says, "Hey, you know, this is what CSIS is doing. This is what the RCMP is doing." Uh, but you got to figure something going on because you and I had this discussion. I came about six months ago. Uh, it was a report from your former colleagues at CSIS that said they have hard evidence that yeah, the Russians did try to impact the Canadian election last yeah. fall. Uh, we know they tried to impact the U.S. elections, uh, so they're doing that. Uh, there's pretty strong evidence that they're involved in corporate espionage as well, and they're doing some things to kind of mess people up there too. Uh, and it's not just some guy sitting in a basement someplace in in, in Moscow. I mean, this is a coordinated effort uh, by Russian security. So. Th- I, I can understand why NATO would issue a warning like this, but I would imagine that the uh, you know the reaction from most of the NATO leaders is yeah yeah we knew that we're 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 looking out for it already. Well, exactly. You know, I, I can't betray a lot of confidences for obvious reasons, Bill. But even when I was at CSIS working on counterterrorism for 15 years, focusing on jihadis as those terrorists, I had colleagues that were still looking at Russia and China, et cetera, et cetera, from what we call a CI or counterintelligence perspective or foreign interference, which is Section 2B of the CSIS Act. So we've been doing this for a very long time. It goes back to the Cold War days. It never really ended. I'm confident that my former colleagues are, are, are looking at, you know, overturning the rocks and seeing who's who, who's who in the zoo and what they're doing. But yeah, this is not something that we, we didn't down tools over the, you know, when the Cold War rendered because we realized that there were potentials, that potential threats there. So I don't think anybody's surprised from the internal sort of security intelligence law enforcement perspective. Yeah, it's a kind of scary headline, isn't it? You know, Russia's a threat. But then again, if you've read the news over the past, I don't know, five, six, seven years, with what Russia under Putin's been doing, this should come as a surprise to no one that they're an aggressive state. They're trying to sort of regain the lost luster of the Soviet empire. And Putin doesn't seem to want to stop anytime soon. So no, we shouldn't be surprised at all by this bill. But at the same time, we shouldn't panic. As you said, they're not, they're not, we're not going to see nuclear missiles launched over Canada tomorrow. At least I hope not. Um, you know, let, let's let our security services do their job and, and let's support, uh, you know, our part, our partners in NATO to try to, to get Ukraine to rid itself of the Russian invader. Well, and I guess to that point, uh, you know, the news uh, that didn't make a big headline, but I think it made a lot of people sit up, uh, was the recommitment the Canadian government made to to NORAD to, to shore up the, uh, the defenses uh, on our northern border in cooperation with the United States, of course, uh, which kind of indicates that, you know, Russia, we, we haven't forgotten about you. We know what you guys are like, and, and we're going to make sure that everything's in place here. So, I, again, I don't think this is news to them that they're concerned about Russian attacks because we already know because uh, the debate's already been ongoing, I guess, for a couple of years now, more than a couple of years, uh, about Russians interest in, in what's going on up in the Arctic Circle and, and the, the things that are happening there, too. So, you know, we've, we've got our eye on them. I think your, your point's well taken. Uh, gladness means, you know, just because Reagan and Gorbachev hugged each other a couple of <laughs> times doesn't necessarily mean that all is forgiven or forgotten. Well, exactly. And I was actually quite happy to see the Trudeau government state that because... In my mind, Bill, they have not been all that hard on national security. Uh, I think they've let some things lapse, including resources for security intelligence over the last couple of years. So if they're finally getting the message that, yes, we can't ignore things like NORAD. And, and you, again, you know, I remember the dew line, um, Bill, the distant early warning system that was across yep. Canada during the Cold War. And we let that thing kind of fritter away because we, we thought it was either too expensive or not necessary. But, you know, threats, the funny thing about threats, Bill, is they never really go away. They kind of ebb and flow. And just because something isn't active right now doesn't mean it can't become active in a couple of years' time. So from a security intelligence perspective, you're always sort of standing on guard. You're looking at what's happening. Even if the public ignores it, you don't have the luxury of doing so. So I, again, I tip my hat to the men and women in the armed forces, uh, in the RCMP and CSIS and CSE, et cetera. They're doing what they have to do for us to help keep Canada safe. And thankfully, the politicians are finally taking notice and supporting them as they should be. As well. Uh, Phil, have a great Canada Day weekend. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. You too, sir. Happy Canada Day.
You betcha. Phil Gursky, a security expert, speaking to us from uh, just inside Ottawa. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the provincial election is uh, in the rearview mirror right now. Uh, the premier announced his cabinet last week, and we've uh, discussed that in great detail. Uh, but still a lot of work to do, uh, especially for the opposition parties, uh, including choosing interim leader. And uh, the NDP have done that. And he is uh, Peter Tavins, who is the, uh, of course, MPP for Toronto Danforth. And uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us a rundown on what's going to be happening. Peter, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for the time today. Well, Bill, it's a real pleasure to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Looking forward to the chat. Yeah, and I just want people to understand that, you know, the legislature is not sitting right now. We'll get into when they will in just a couple of seconds here. But you've got a lot on your plate as interim leaders. You don't get any days off here, do you, Peter? (laughs) No, Bill, it's true. I mean, I think over the weekend I'll take the evenings off. But, yeah, it's pretty steady. There's no getting around it. I mean, I was just selected this week. I've got a lot of work I've got to do in preparation for the House coming back. And, uh, yeah, there's not a lot of downtime. But, you know, Bill, it's fun work, and I asked for it, so I can't complain. Well, and you've been doing it for a long time. I mean, you're no rookie to this stuff, and you've seen the ins and outs of this. Uh, yes. as, as the dust settles, Peter, and you see the seat count and, and where they're going and some of the uh, the cabinet uh, appointees in the last little while, what, what's your read on what's going to be happening in the, in the months ahead with the legislature? <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough one, Bill. I mean, my guess is that... Uh, The Ford government set out its agenda and its budget. I think it's going to continue doing that. Uh, I don't think that's good news for people in Ontario. As you're well aware, people are having a tough time with the cost of housing. They're having a tough time with rising rents. Uh, Prices are going up, and wages are not following. And I I don't see this government addressing those things, and I think that that's going to be a huge problem for people in this province. They they see their standard of living uh, either stagnating or dropping, and there, that's no way to live. People want to live decent lives. When you look at priorities, and, and I know that the Premier keeps talking about infrastructure, two highway projects specifically, which I know you've got some pretty strong opinions on. Yep. Uh, but we're hearing from an awful lot of healthcare advocates that are saying that they don't seem to be talking a whole lot about that. We've gone through a pandemic. As a matter of fact, to be frank about it, we haven't got, we're not out of the pandemic yet. And uh, some experts are telling us that a uh, fourth booster may be not mandatory, but uh, very, very highly recommended because of some of the new strains. Uh, what I think the, the pandemic showed is that there are a lot of weaknesses in this system. And yeah. as soon as it gets stressed, and we certainly got it stressed because of COVID, uh, you know, the, it pointed out where you know, the help needed to be. I don't know that there's much of a commitment to do much of anything about that right now, because you know, it's, it's kind of like, oh, it's out of sight, out of mind right now, but it's not. No, it, it's, it's very much a reality that people are having to deal with. And you're quite right. This, this government, the Ford government, seems to be putting health care on the back burner. Uh, they're not doing the things I think you need to do to prepare for increased COVID uh, outbreaks later this year in the fall. They should be promoting vaccination. They should be making sure that uh, we're building capacity in case we have more people coming into the hospitals. But, uh, Bill, it goes back to, to the deeper issues. You know, we've got in this province... Uh, a bill capping wage increases for healthcare workers, the people who risked their lives and, you know, in some cases lost their lives, protecting people the last few years are limited to 1% wage increase. We're seeing inflation, what, around 8%. So they're seeing big cuts in their ability to pay their bills, their ability to buy food, pay rent, etc. Um, not paying attention to that. And that means that people are leaving. You know, we've got 
emergency rooms that are stretched, hospital services that are stretched. If you discourage people from working in our healthcare system, they're going to leave, and that puts the rest of us in the lurch. So, I, you know, there are other things, of course. Uh, Ontario's uh, the lowest spender per person on healthcare across Canada, uh, and that's uh, an historic problem one that I don't see this government addressing. So you're right. When it comes to health care, they're not keeping the system going, and they're not preparing for the tougher times that may well be coming. When people say, well, what were you doing? Why didn't you make sure that the emergency rooms were open and that we get the care we needed when we needed it? I don't see that coming from this government. So I, going back to your first question, yeah, I see a lot of things going backwards and tougher times from this government. Well, I saw a report yesterday that I, th- I thought was rather chilling uh, when they looked at hospital admissions uh, and new cases. And uh, those numbers are about the same as they were in December of last year. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think a lot of us thought, okay, whoa, are they really? Because we don't talk much about it. But the hospitals certainly know about it. And they're concerned that if these new variants come along, and they're already in other parts of the world, it's not as if, yep. hey, this might happen. Uh, Canada is one of the few countries that hasn't been impacted yet. And yep. it, um, let's underscore yet. Uh, that it's going to put that strain on the house on the healthcare system once again on hospitals. Uh, we've talked to the nurses association, and of course they've got people leaving their that profession left, right, and center uh, because they're exhausted, they're overworked, and we know certainly they're underpaid because of that one percent cap yeah, yeah. on salaries. Uh, there's there's a a large black cloud looming ahead here, and they they don't seem to be paying much attention to it. No, you're, you're exactly right. They aren't. Right. They are not paying attention. In fact, what they're doing actively is making things more difficult. If you have that wage cap and you're driving nurses and other healthcare workers out of the system, if you're discouraging personal support workers from being uh, in the healthcare system and helping people, then this isn't just not paying attention. This is actively making things worse. And they, they have to turn around. They can't pursue this course of action without damage to people, and people are not going to put up with being damaged and, and look i'm not hounding these guys because you know this is not a partisan thing at all i just don't want to see what happened in the last two years happening again yeah and 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 because it hasn't gone away and the medical professionals are telling us that look we still need to be on guard i'm sure you saw the report yesterday uh from a, a number of doctors that said you know what maybe we should bring back masking indoors even though it is summertime, uh, that you know they're concerned very much so that that this is going to spread again. And I, I I think I'm probably understating it, Peter, if I say the the masking, no masking, closing, not closing, is something this government didn't handle well in the, in the last couple of years with the pandemic. No, they they handled it very badly. It was it was a situation where they ignored the medical advice they were getting, which would have saved lives and put all of us in a position where we were safer sooner so that we get back to something resembling normal. They didn't run that. They brought in that ridiculous ban on kids being in playgrounds and uh, saying, well, police can stop everyone anywhere. Uh, I mean, they had to backtrack on that because of the public outrage. But they were always one big step behind. And I, you know, I have to mention as well the thousands of people who died in long-term care. And this is after the premier said, we're going to put an iron ring of protection around them. Well, I, I talked to families when that was going on. People were phoning me saying, you know, they had an aunt or a grandmother in a long-term care facility. And they were scared that they were going to die and they couldn't get a response from the government. It, they didn't seem to, well, they didn't understand what was going on and they didn't act. And that meant people died. And that is inexcusable. And the idea that you wouldn't have learned from that 
and be acting now to put in place the preventive measures so that people are kept safe is just beyond me. It's beyond uh, with a. Peter Tabbins, the interim leader of the Ontario NDP. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, how to select and when they're going to be selecting a new leader in just a couple of seconds here. Sure. Uh, but one, one other aspect of this, though, Peter, is the economy and the economic stuff. And we mentioned a few minutes ago that the Premier uh, is, is setting his priorities. Uh, the you know, 413 Highway, uh, the Bradford Bypass, two of his pet projects. Uh, he's also talked an awful lot about the Ring of Fire and extracting minerals, uh, building a road out there and, and getting that stuff. Uh, and that's going to cause, uh, well, hopefully... Uh, uh, a, a supply chain of, of raw materials so we can make the EV batteries. And it's, and I hope it all works for the sake of the Ontario economy. Uh, but I don't want people to get the impression that they're going to start putting a shovel in the ground on that pretty soon. There are land issues with uh, Indigenous groups up there, uh, a number of different things that have to be settled. This is nowhere near ready to go. If uh, the, the, It seems as if he's, he's you know ready to cut the ribbon and they haven't even finished the negotiations yet. <laughs> uh, Bill, yes, exactly. You're right. I think he's stringing up ribbons wherever he can and running around with a pair of scissors. But in fact, no, he hasn't sorted out the fundamental problems. There are environmental problems as well as First Nation land issues uh, that haven't been touched yet. And we've had a lot of speculation about the Ring of Fire for quite a few years. It's not clear to me how real uh, this whole project is at the moment, uh, but certainly you're right. The, the Premier is claiming something to be putting people to work immediately when, frankly, even if it were to, if it were to go ahead, we're talking many years in the future. Uh, that's, that's not a strategy. And building, building new highways, the 413 and the Bradford Bypass, when what we desperately need is a lot more investment in transit, what we need is uh, reshaping our cities so that they make more sense in terms of transportation. Uh, not even talking about that, not even thinking about that. And I think for the rest of the people in Ontario, the idea of sinking 8 to $10 billion into Highway 413 that's not going to solve any problems but create a whole bunch of new ones just doesn't make any sense. I mean, people need help on a day-to-day -day basis. They don't need a project that's basically going to help the, the Premier's developer friends make a fortune. And that's, that's what's driving the construction of that highway. But, but something kind of a head shaker about that, though, Peter. We talked about that. We talked with a uh, you know, number of different people about the environmental concerns. Uh, uh, David Crombie, of course, uh, you know, the former conservative MP and, and cabinet minister of the Mulroney government, yep. uh, was in charge of the Greenbelt uh, and very respected. He, he resigned because of the government's policies, uh, including yep. these two highways. And we talked with a number of the people on those local councils that said this is the wrong thing to do. But Peter, you look at the results of the provincial election, all of those communities voted Conservatives in. So uh, does that indicate that they are supportive of it after all? Well, you know, I was asked about this yesterday. 60% of the people in Ontario didn't vote for this government. I mean, let's face it, it's a legal and a legitimate government. That's the way our system works. But the majority of people in Ontario didn't accept the policies that he brought forward. And I know uh, that people in the area where the 413 is proposed, a lot of people are, are working against that. I don't think that this is, was a referendum on that highway. No way. No way at all. Uh, so I, I think if you're actually going to proceed with this, um, you're ignoring provincial finances, you're in, ignoring the environment, you're ignoring your planning for the long run to, to have a green belt in the greater Toronto-Hamilton area. 
Well, uh, as again, we don't know how that's going to work out either because there could be court challenges uh, with some of those yeah. things as well. So, uh, you know, just doing it, you know that old phrase, you've been in politics a long, long time. Winning is easy, governing is difficult. Uh, and I guess they're finding that out uh, with some of the challenges <laughs> that they're going to be facing. Uh, with a very going true on. saying, Bill, a very true saying. Speaking of which, a uh, lot of speculation about how the NDP... Uh, we'll focus on them, the Liberals, another day about getting a leader, an interim leader. And, and this, uh, uh, you were named interim leader. Uh, the, when is the convention going to be? How is it going to be? Uh, there's usually a fee that has to be paid. Has any of that step been decided yet, Peter? No, the the conversation or the debate on that started the other night. Uh, it wasn't completed. We're going to be holding another meeting relatively soon, I imagine, uh, to go through that and settle all those details. Uh, to tell you the truth, Bill, that's more... Uh, being run by the party than by me as interim sure. leader, and they would probably give you uh, a more informed and more complete answer. Yeah, because we, we've had the speculation about this, about when it's going to be. Uh, as a veteran MPP, though, Peter, uh, when something like this occurs and you need to choose a new leader, uh, should it be a short campaign to get one, or do you want longer? I know we talked with Wayne Gates from Niagara Falls, uh, one of your uh, uh, colleagues in the NDP oh, yeah. caucus, and uh, and and Wayne said, "I'd rather it took a lot more time. That, you know, we could raise more money." And I'm not so sure if that's in the interest of the party or of the individuals. Others are suggesting, "Let's get this done ASAP." You've been around the horn a few times. What would you think? Well, it's it's interesting you ask, uh, and you're right. I have been around the horn a few times, uh, but. As one of the conditions for becoming interim leader, I made a commitment to stay completely out of the leadership race and its arrangements. And uh, the question of timing has become uh, a big question, actually, for the different candidates. And so I'm not offering an opinion on this. I am completely neutral. And, and it's really important that the leadership campaigns feel that I am staying out of this. Uh, they don't want me weighing in. They said, interim leader, keep things going. That's fine, but don't try and shape the leadership race. And I think that's a fair request on their part. A couple of quickies uh, while we've got you here. Um, gas tax uh, reduction the, prom the Premier promised is going into effect. I, I guess that's going to offer some temporary relief uh, for some people, but uh, what we're looking for here is long-term solutions uh, to the energy crisis. That, uh, and it's not just an Ontario crisis. We have to put that yep. in context. It's going on all over the place. Uh, but it's within the purview of provincial governments to offer assistance like that. Uh, uh, what, what's on the plate? What would you suggest now as, as interim leader of this party that this government should be doing to try to offer some relief for people that are really, really starting to be impacted by this? I mean, I've talked to a number of people that say, you know what, we're not going on holiday this year. Even, even yeah. you know, you said four months ago, we said, okay, we'll just travel in Ontario. So we can't even afford to do that now. Yeah. Well, two things I, I want to say. One is that because gas prices aren't regulated in Ontario, we don't believe that the reduction taxes would actually be passed on to people. Uh, we think that you might see a, a decline for a week or so. And then, as you know, Bill, really well, prices go up and down all the time. It's very easy to hide an increase. Just say, okay, price of oil went up again. Uh, so we don't actually think people are going to get much out of this, if anything at all. And we had suggested in the legislature uh, make make a commitment to send at least this year uh, a tax rebate or a check to people um, based on their income so that they get some relief. Uh, but we don't actually think that this savings that will be passed will be declared really for just part of this year is actually going to meet 
people's needs or actually get out to most of them. I think it will make uh, oil companies a lot richer, no doubt about it. But helping people who need to get around, I don't see it happening. How much of an impact uh, can an opposition party have? I mean, the government's got their agenda. Uh, and, and, you know, they're going to say, look, we got the votes for everything here. And uh, they can limit debate. There's an awful lot of tools they can use to try to shut things down. But but can you, as, as an opposition party, uh, still try to influence and, and at least get them to modify government policies or maybe even change them or, or maybe even marshal public opinion towards some things like this? It's a, it's a huge responsibility. I mean, you, you're not just sitting on the other side of the legislative building. They're just yelling at them all the time. There's got to be some constructive work done between all three, well, four parties now with Mike Schreiner and the Green Party there. Uh, yeah, do you I- see that happening? Well, it does, and it's often not newsworthy, but I, I will say, going back to the the first point you made about what can opposition parties do, we can embarrass governments, we can raise issues, we can present information that they haven't presented. You're well aware that the Ford government in the past has had to back off on its attacks on the Green Belt. Uh, we'd like to... Uh, see or say to people, yes, you can win. Um, And we have in the past and we will in the future mobilize public opinion. Uh, We will do what we can in the legislature to slow things down when we see things going in the wrong direction. Um, But making the arguments, presenting the data and getting the story out so that the public opinion terrain changes and the government realizes that it's going to be a loser to pursue a particular course of action. That's that's the primary tool that we have and one we intend to use. Uh, a number of other issues I want to get into. I, I, one of my, my pet peeves, of course, has always been that uh, we're the only jurisdiction in Canada, I believe, that's not offering rebates for buying electric vehicles. And, and it, that's got to be reconsidered, too. But uh, we'll get into those, I guess, in the, the weeks and months ahead. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for this. Uh, I, you know how busy you are, even heading into a Canada Day weekend. I appreciate you spending some time with us today. Happy, have a happy Canada Day weekend, whatever time you get off. Thanks very much, Bill, and thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Peter Peter Tappens, who is the interim leader of the Ontario NDP Party. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're going to get to the energy deal in just a second here. Uh, The Prime Minister and uh, the uh, uh, President of Germany are looking at a couple of different things here, but uh, details on that. First of all, I want to talk about Air Canada, though. Uh, we've talked about the, the the problems the airline industry has had because of the pandemic and the shutdowns. We all know that now. That's a uh, well-known history. Uh, but, the, you know, the, the backups at the airport, I, you've, you've seen the pictures of Pearson Airport and, and, and Montreal and Vancouver, and it's, it's just crazy, which is kind of surprising to, f- to hear this story, then, that Air Canada has announced that they're going to be reducing flights this summer amid what they call customer service shortfalls. Emily Javesky has details. Air Canada says the changes on average will affect 154 flights per day, mainly from its Toronto and Montreal hubs. The company says its international flights will not be affected other than some timing changes to reduce flying at peak times. Chief Executive Michael Russo is apologizing and says the company foresaw much of the strain now weighing on global aviation networks. He says the company is struggling with delays and disruptions despite a hiring blitz. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. So if you're planning on traveling, that's probably not the news you want to hear. Uh, to talk about this and the, the uh, discussion between Germany and Canada about uh, energy, uh, I want to welcome back Marvin Ryder. Marvin, of course, is a professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University in Hamilton. Uh, Marvin, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us again. Glad to be with you, Bill. You fly from time to time. Uh, I hope you I haven't do. been at Pearson for the last little while. I, 
uh, if you have, you've been there for a long while because of the lineups that are on there. Were you surprised by the Air Canada announcement? Well, Bill, first, I have flown through Pearson a couple of times over the last few months, and I haven't had any problems at all. So it does seem that what it is is a timing issue, that there are certain times during the day where things are going fine and other times when they aren't. Now, I think when you fly, what most people don't realize is it's not just getting you from point A to point B. In other words, at a, uh, at a terminal that you check in, there are security people, there are customs people, there are baggage handlers. Yes, there are the people at the counters, but there's a whole army of people required to get you onto the plane. And then at the other end, there's a whole army of people to get you off the plane. And what we've seen coming out of the pandemic is first that everyone seems to want to travel again after being locked down. No surprise that we want to travel. But now those airports, the systems just don't have enough people to deliver the customer service. So I am, I am surprised. I thought Air Canada might do what other people do is blame somebody else. Look, it's not our fault. We've got the pilots, we've got the flight attendants, but it's those darn you know, security people or it's those darn customs people, they have to step up. And instead, what Air Canada has said is, look, if the system cannot handle this volume of flights, we are better off not offering some of the flights. And yes, that means canceling some that have already been booked, but we're better off not offering those flights if we can't deliver the right level of customer service. Certainly so far this year, in the first half of this year, we've seen complaints to the, the transportation board go up dramatically. I think nearly 100% increase in complaints. So this is one of those old, you know, Mohammedan mountain things. If you can't bring Mohammed to the mountain, then reduce the size of the mountain and try to get things back to a level that you can deliver good customer service. What, what are the numbers like here? I mean, are, are we flying more than we did before the pandemic? Is that what this is? It isn't that we're flying more, but the, the bounce back, no one was expecting us to get the load factor. So that's what airline travel is all about, is how many seats are occupied. And during the pandemic, sometimes you had flights flying with only 25% load factor, 75% of the seats were empty. And we thought, intelligent people like me and others thought, well, it's going to take a while to win back consumer confidence. And this while might have been two, three, four years Instead, you could probably measure it in two, three, four weeks. We have bounced back much, much faster than the system was responding to. Now, yes, they've been going on a hiring bit blitz, but you can't just hire someone and put them there. There's a whole set of training that has to go on. Also, the industry, when they were downsizing, a number of people chose to retire. So we've just got a, a, an employment gap that they've got to work through. But yeah, really, it's all about us bouncing back and traveling at levels pre-pandemic like except we thought this would take four years to get there rather than four weeks. There's got to be a, a financial hit for Air Canada, though, on this, is there? Yeah, so again, there's two words to think about here, revenue and profit. Revenue mm -hmm. is the total number of sales you make, and obviously if you cancel a, a 150 flights a day, you are going to be reducing the amount of revenue. But the focus is to deliver these things profitably. If I have to pay penalties for a bad service, uh, there goes my profit level. So... I'd rather have a smaller volume of revenue coming in, but serve it profitably than trying to reach for more revenue and then serving it unprofitably. Uh, we'll hear those numbers, probably not in this quarter, but the third quarter, which will get closer to December before we hear what those numbers actually look like.
Recent data here shows that uh, more than half of all flights in and out of some of Canada's major airports are being canceled or delayed because of uh, uh, the problems that you've just outlined here. Uh, this was Air Canada's response. What are the other airlines doing? I, I know there's some jiggling around going on with some of the other carriers too. Yeah, so let's speak Canada versus the world. Uh, okay. You know, certainly some of the American carriers at this point, they have said we're still going to offer our full flight schedule even if it means delays. So they've gone the other route. They've said to consumers, look, get to the airport earlier, expect to stay later. Don't be surprised if there's a delay. And I, I don't think that's a wise move. I think if you beat up on your customers, they're going to remember it. Here in Canada, we have a small number of, of major competitors, WestJet, Air Canada, and obviously Porter. Porter flies not out of Pearson, but out of the island airport. Porter's not seem to have had as many problems. WestJet has had some of them, and at this point, they've said, this is a wonderful word, that they are reviewing, reviewing the situation to determine what they do. I think the way you can interpret that is they're waiting to see how people react to the Air Canada announcement, and if they don't react badly, probably WestJet will follow suit. Uh, but this, this, as you mentioned, these are domestic flights, uh, but what about these markets? I mean, there's, there's business class, there is business going on between these two, too. Uh, there's there's going to be an impact here, and I would imagine there's going to be some pushback from uh, the, the fact that some of these flights that were available last week are not going to be available now. Yes, I think there will be, but I think also consumers have heard these horror stories and saying, I don't want to experience that. Uh, and so, you know, if what we see is uh, one flight a day between, I don't know, let's say Toronto and New York canceled and people have to reschedule. And of course, that's the idea. Let's let you know now, if you're planning to travel in August, you've got plenty of time to adjust your travel plans and make it work. I think, again, people would rather have a smooth flight experience than one subject to delays. And, and Bill, frankly, it's almost like the Russian roulette table. You know, you spin the wheel. I went through without a problem at all. I don't know what you're talking about, but somebody else, remember that nice hockey player who told his story, he had more than a day's worth of delays. We don't want to see that. No one wants to see that level of service. Well, we'll see how it pans out over the next little while. Let me switch gears. I want to talk about a discussion that was occurring at the the G7 meeting in Madrid, Spain, just a few hours ago, of course, between Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Chancellor Schultz of Germany. Uh, mm -hmm. about trying to cut some sort of a deal here. For, they want our natural gas because Russia's cutting it off for them and they're pretty ticked about that as you might be and it is going to get cold eventually. Uh, so they're, they're trying to make some long-term plans. Now, as I understand it, Marvin, we got lots of natural gas, uh, but we have a problem getting it over there. Yeah, yeah, that's the short idea. So if you'd read the story initially, you thought, wow, what a great story. Canada and Germany talking about uh, liquefied natural gas shipments uh, to fill in the Russian void. Yay, Canada, go for it. But we have a really significant problem. The shipment to Germany should occur from the east coast of Canada, and we don't actually have any export terminals for liquefied natural gas there. All of our liquefied natural gas terminals are on the west coast, and that would mean a boat would have to be loaded with natural gas there, liquefied natural gas, then go across the Pacific, go through the Suez, go through the Mediterranean, loop up, and remember the ports in Germany are in the north. This is a tremendously expensive trip. It would be much better. So what's Canada trying to do? So they didn't actually sign the deal. What they said is, let's explore this deal. Uh, Canada has found uh, not an export terminal, but an import terminal. There's a private company that had been importing some liquefied natural gas in the Halifax area. 
So they're working with that company to see if this terminal can be retrofitted. Why? Well, if you try to build a new terminal from scratch, it'll take four years. That's far too long. Germany needs natural gas and it more or less needs it right now. So if they can find a way to get the private sector to rejig this uh, import terminal to make it an export terminal, then the chancellor says he is so important, this deal is so important, he will fly to Canada in August to sign the fine print and make it all happen. So in essence, now the fat is in the fire. Can we, Canada, find a way to make this happen and make this happen quickly? If so, we'll be blessed with a nice contract. Uh, and maybe more than one contract. I mean, that, Germany's not the only country that's been impacted by Russia's uh, uh, you know, policies now, but sh- shutting the pipes off on a lot of this stuff. Right. So to, to say it a little differently, you might have said, well, why is it that all our terminals are on the West Coast? Up until recently, Europe wasn't interested in our gas. Remember that shipping it this way is a different cost structure than just bringing it in from Russia. Look, our needs are being met by Russia. Why do we need to worry? So because that market, Europe, was more or less shut off to us, we weren't developing any East Coast delivery mechanisms. We were focused on the West to send the natural gas to Asia. Well, now you're absolutely right. Not only are they shutting off the gas to to Germany, but there are lots of other European countries. So the idea is, can we get at least one export terminal going? Maybe we'll then need to expand the capacity of that. And suddenly a market that had been closed has opened. It's one of those funny benefits of the Ukrainian conflict, much like Canadian grain, which some years wasn't that much in demand. Some years we had a glut of it because the Ukrainian grain can't be shipped. Now everybody's interested in Canadian grain. So there's good news coming out of this Ukrainian conflict, too. Okay, let's talk about roadblocks, because there will always be roadblocks. Uh, Yep. Environmental groups uh, don't share uh, everybody's passion, I guess, for trying to get this stuff over here. They'd prefer not to. Uh, Canada, just a couple of weeks ago, recommitted themselves to reducing greenhouse gases uh, and fossil fuels usage. Uh, is, Is this a reversal of that? Uh, No, not exactly. So I I think if you were going to build a brand new export terminal in the Halifax area, yes, the environmental groups would come in and this is why it would take four years. You've got to do the environmental assessments. You've got to meet all the different concerns. If instead we already have an existing facility that can be be modified in some way, that would be less of a concern. And, And I think the environmental groups are also a bit stuck here because Germany has said this. Uh, we, uh, Germany, had been burning natural gas to generate electricity. So because we can't get the volume of natural gas we want, we are going to take mothballed plants that burn coal to generate electricity and reactivate them. Now, coal is a very, very dirty mechanism from the environmental standpoint. So, you know, now it's the lesser of two evils. Would I rather that Germany have natural gas to supply its general heating needs as well as electricity generating needs? or go back to burning coal, I think environmentalists would say, well, if that's my choice, I'd rather have liquefied natural gas. I'd rather have them do solar and wind and everything else, but if it's between coal and natural gas, let's do the lesser of the two evils. This plant that we were talking about retrofitting right now, by the way, is this going to be a short-term deal with Germany, Uh, just to get them over the hump until this thing is resolved in Europe, or is this this something that we can count on for the long term? Because yeah, uh, that that part of it first. Yeah, well, that's a great question, Bill. And of course, the answer is we don't know because what they they didn't actually sign a deal; they signed an agreement to explore this, and it's all contingent on whether this 
uh, export facility can be turned, or excuse me, this import facility can be turned into an export facility. Now, I think if the answer is yes, we can make this conversion relatively quickly, have it for you for this fall, then the next thing will be to sit down with Jeremy and say, okay, we've got a way to deliver it now. How many years can we sign you up for? I don't think we're going to go through all this. And again, the private sector is involved. I don't think they're going to go through this just for a one-year or a six-month contract. I think it would be something like a five- or ten-year supply deal. And frankly, Bill, even if the Ukrainian war ended tomorrow, the world isn't going to run a path back to Russia and say, all is forgiven, let's buy. You know, we're seeing this new iron curtain falling that can be measured now in terms of decades. So I think it would be a 10-year kind of a deal, but it's all contingent on whether we can get this export facility ready quickly to meet Germany's needs. Do we have the, uh, the supply to do this? I mean, you know, I know we've always wanted to do this, but if, in fact, like you say, if Italy and other nations start calling too, uh, it sounds like it could be a pretty lucrative deal uh, for the Canadian side of things right now, as long as we've got the product to be able to get it over there. Yeah, we don't have an infinite gas supply, but gas is certainly something that we do produce in abundance. Uh, we're among the world's largest uh, natural gas producers. Now, the, the system we have right now, it's an interesting system because it's in cooperation with the United States. Uh, gas that is uh, taken from Alberta, uh, Saskatchewan to some extent, is then put into a system. And then at the other end, say in Halifax, you draw out of the system. Meanwhile, it passes through the United States. So I can't label the molecules and say that is a molecule that came from Alberta or that's a molecule that came from Texas. We all dump the gas in the system and we keep track of how much we put in that then gives us a right to take out a certain amount. I don't think the supply issue is a problem, at least to supply Germany. Now, it really depends, Bill. Are we talking two other countries? Are we talking 10 other countries? Are they smaller countries like a place like Malta or are they a big country like France? So all of this would be done. But really, Germany is the one that is in most need of, of natural gas almost immediately. And it's for that reason that we're going down this road. And I think it's a great experiment and a great challenge for us. OK, if we want to be a major player on the world scene, we got to be able to step up during these circumstances. Quick sidebar, if I could, Marvin, based on some conversations I've had with some government officials about, about energy. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, okay, we've got to find something other than fossil fuels. And, and we all know about wind and, 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 and solar, et cetera, et cetera. But hydrogen is coming up more and more right now, too. Uh, where are we with that? Is, 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 are we on track? Are we deciding on that? Are we, are we moving in the direction? Because, I mean, that, that could be a very lucrative uh, future, too, if, you, if you're going to be one of the early players to get in on that. Sure. So the, the magic word you used in your question is we... Uh, and I think when you say we, you're speaking about sort of governmental policy. Our federal and provincial governments have not ruled out using hydrogen, but they're really looking for private sector partners. And if you take, uh. for instance, the car industry, the car industry has looked at hydrogen as a fuel source and generally taken a pass. Now, there are companies, you might remember a company called Ballard in British Columbia that had developed a, a way to burn hydrogen and run your automobiles. And when you burn hydrogen, you produce water vapor which is something that isn't harmful to the environment. But the auto industry itself has looked at that and said, no, we feel more comfortable using electricity. And therefore their commitment is electric vehicles by 2030. Uh, in terms of household use, running hydrogen to the house, again, haven't seen a lot. It's possible, just haven't seen a lot of work done there. So this is a combination. I don't think the government 
has said no to it, but the private sector so far has not warmed up to it. But again, that will change depending upon world demand. Exactly. Marvin, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate the clarification. Have a good weekend. Happy Canada Day. Thank you. Same to you folks. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.